Hello, hello, hello. I'm back. It is a lovely day in Halifax, and I'm thrilled to be back with another episode of Deeper Pod. How are you? Are you busy preparing for the holidays, or do you disregard the holiday season? I'm usually in the latter camp, but this year is the first Christmas that I have really been into since early childhood. I'll be celebrating with my very new husband. We got married on Sunday in a small ceremony, which consisted of my lovely man, my best friend Nikki, and her adorable son Casey. There's still so much baggage carried by places of worship, but Reverend Dr. Rusty Edwards welcomed us with open arms and carried out a beautiful ceremony for us. Even though we really weren't looking for an ostentatious affair, we just really wanted to tie the knot, officialize it, Uh, But he really made it spectacular and memorable. And due to pandemic restrictions, we couldn't have guests, which worked out superbly because I didn't want guests. And I now get to use the pandemic as an excuse for why I didn't invite anybody, even though I wouldn't have invited them three years ago. So worked out really well on that front. But in short, we are so happy and we are doing all of the Christmas things. We are decorating our tree on Saturday, exchanging gifts on Christmas Day. I got him a chocolate advent calendar. It's so fun celebrating with a Brazilian because there are so many firsts for him to experience here in Canada. And I've been thoroughly enjoying surprising him with uh, little things. My friend Hank listened to our last show and told me that it sounded like gay NPR. I still don't know what that means exactly, but I guess I'm going to take it as a compliment, even though NPR sounds like this. Hello and welcome to NPR. Today on the show, we will be speaking with legendary sports superstar Amelia Richardson. Amelia was 12 years old when she first picked up a soccer ball. So I really hope I don't sound like that. If I do, apologies. Maybe I'll get better. Maybe I won't. So what else is going on? The new Omicron variant sounds quite frightening. I'm not an epidemiologist, so obviously I'm going to continue listening to the experts. But I do wonder how long, as a society, we can continue with these sporadic mass shutdowns and border closures. After two years, it doesn't really feel like we've come very far in terms of developing a sustainable way to deal with this virus. Here in Canada, we were told by politicians that there was light at the end of the tunnel, And this was months ago. That clearly isn't the case. And while I fully trust the science, and I will continue to get vaccinated and boosters if necessary and mask in public, I do think politicians and health experts have to be extremely cautious to not make people feel disaffected. Don't make promises that can't be kept. Make it clear if this is our new normal, but don't give false hope to people. These sound bites from politicians and public health offering hope to the public are what have given rise to the shameful and despicable anti-vax movement, and I don't want to see that sentiment fester amongst people who would otherwise follow public health guidelines. So, you know, I hope that makes sense. Now go wash your hands, go put on your mask, go get your shot, and let's keep our fingers crossed that this shit is soon in our past. 
because I'm over it. On my last show, I spoke with Kim Hastrider, the founder of Paper Magazine. As I said at the beginning, she is a tough New Yorker. I felt like her guard was up throughout the interview, which is disappointing, but it happens from time to time. As an interviewer, I'm not here to shock, embarrass, solicit dirty details of anybody's life. I'm here to learn, listen, and have fun. And thankfully, I had a blast with my guest this week. I was joined by Richard Hatch. He is an eclectic character, to put it mildly. He was funny, inviting, revealing, and warm. And he won the very first season of CBS's Survivor. The show in the year 2000 was a juggernaut. The finale of Survivor Borneo was watched by over 50 million people. It's the second highest rated TV episode in the first decade of the 21st century. It was succeeded only by the finale of Friends. TV ratings like that simply do not exist anymore period. He became a star, he revolutionized reality television, and he's just an all-around uh, interesting guy. But before that, I want to discuss what's been making news in the queer sphere. Eddie Redmayne has addressed the controversy surrounding his performance of Lily Elba in The Danish Girl, for which he received an Oscar nomination in 2015. Lily Elba was a Danish painter and transgender woman. She was one of the very first recipients of gender reassignment surgery. You know, the decision to cast Eddie in this role was disrespectful, period. I can't imagine how Lily Elba, a woman, would feel about a straight man playing her in a film about her life. It's unfathomable, and of course he should regret taking that role, and whomever casted him should also regret that decision. I am a firm believer that as humans we are capable of growth. Growth is what life is all about. If this was an isolated incident, however, and Redmayne had demonstrated a change by the roles he chooses to take on, I would say that his performance in The Danish Girl should not be held against him. But I don't think Eddie has learned a lesson. He has now agreed to play an androgynous character in the new West End production of Cabaret. Cabaret takes place in 1930s Berlin when Hitler was vying for power. Redmayne's character, the MC, is a personification of unfettered sexual freedom it's a gender-bending character. That description alone doesn't exactly elicit straight white man in my mind. So I'm sitting here questioning why it's so difficult for Eddie to make space, step aside, and let one of the many queer performers amongst us to take on this new role. Somebody who can bring lived experience and lived emotion to this role. He, as I just said, he is white. He is straight, he is a married man with loads of other opportunities. He is an Oscar winner. I think his decision to play this role is tone deaf, particularly in light of his recent admission that his participation in The Danish Girl was inappropriate. It's in this same vein that I find it disrespectful when Harry Styles gives dubious responses when asked about his sexuality while prancing around a stage with a rainbow flag and donning dresses and femme attire on Instagram and the cover of Vogue. If Harry Styles is queer, wonderful. I think that his coming out would help many of his young fans. But what I don't appreciate is somebody who only has been public about relationships with women appropriating queer culture to line his pockets. It really is infuriating to me. I think Scarlett Johansson, Harry Styles, and Eddie Redmayne all need to learn how to make space, and they can start by getting lost for a while and taking notes from Formula One racer Lewis Hamilton. 
He recently wore an LGBT pride helmet at the Qatar Grand Prix. Homosexuality is illegal in Qatar and can lead to jail time, and Hamilton has been vocal about anti-LGBTQ laws in other countries as well. This, unlike the roles that Scarlett and, and Eddie have taken on, Lewis's approach is a subtle but impactful way to show support that doesn't entail taking opportunities away from marginalized people. I love what he did. It's going to be seen by a wide audience and have a rippling effect. I don't know who watches Formula One. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's largely a, a queer um, activity. So I, I think this is great what Lewis Hamilton did. Kudos to him. So in short, I think there are ways to be an ally that do not entail taking opportunities from other people. I have, I want to take a moment to discuss a story that's been getting under my skin lately. CNN anchor Chris Cuomo's involvement in his brother, former Governor Andrew Cuomo's scandal, sexual harassment scandal. Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned this past summer when it was revealed that he subjected women to unwanted kisses, groping, inappropriate touching, making insinuating remarks about their looks and sex lives, and creating a work environment rife with fear and intimidation. Now what's come to light is that his brother, Chris Cuomo, who has a primetime show on CNN, used his media contacts to make his brother and his brother's advisors aware about accusers, and he was also advising his brother, former Governor Cuomo, on how to respond. Now, 11 women came forward to accuse Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment, and I believe each and every one of them. And I myself have two brothers. And I can say to you emphatically that if either of them was accused of sexual harassment or any other egregious behavior, I would not be advising them. I would not be speaking with them. So the fact that one of the top performers at CNN was using media contacts to undermine these women who were doing something courageous by coming forward against one of the most powerful people in New York, and I would argue in politics in the United States. Uh, it's disgraceful. There's no integrity. He has no, in he's proven that he has no integrity as a journalist, and I think it's incumbent upon CNN to remove him, because I certainly will never again be able to watch an episode of Chris Cuomo's show without thinking about this. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine the level of privilege and the level of obliviousness that goes into that decision on Chris Cuomo's part. He's not objective and in fact, he's dangerous. I think somebody who could do something like this is dangerous. So Fire has asked CNN, please, for all of us. So I was reading an article yesterday about Baronelle Stutzman. She's a florist in Washington who refused to provide flowers for a same-sex wedding. She's decided to settle for $5,000 after an eight-year court battle with the couple who has donated the $5,000 to an LGBT organization, PFLAG. I actually, as I said earlier, I got married. Uh, Baronelle is Southern Baptist. I got married in a Baptist church. 
church this past weekend, and the the Reverend Dr. Rusty Edwards, who performed the ceremony, was the most warm, gentle, progressive person you could imagine. So, you know, I guess this story underscores the difference in how religion is perceived and enacted, and I think Baronelle's behavior is just despicable. So I decided to call her flower shop and leave a little message of my own, because why not? You know, we're only on this earth for a limited time, and something I learned is that our voices are for being used, and I don't want to leave this earth ever having not expressed myself in the ways I feel like expressing myself. So take a listen to my call. Arlene's Flowers and Gifts, how can I help you? Hi there, is Baronelle around? Oh, I believe she left for the day. Is Baronelle in the office? Nope, she's gone. Nope, she is gone for the day. Um, I'm trying to think when she'll be back in. She will? Okay, she'll be back in on Wednesday, and the best time to catch her is before noon. Okay. Could you just pass yeah. along a message for me? Yeah, let me get a paper here. Maybe. There we go. Okay, I'm ready for the note. Okay, I just wanted uh, her to know that she is a nasty homophobe, and her arrangements are ugly as hell. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You have a great day. Bye. She was very pleasant in taking the notes, and I hope she does pass along the message to Baronelle, and I hope Baronelle is able to emerge from the depths of misunderstanding that she finds herself in. I really do. Now to my interview with the remarkable Richard Hatch. I hope you enjoy, and let me know what you think. So I hear you have a Nova Scotia connection. I was uh, reading that you've spent a lot of time in Cape Breton. I was going to say a connection. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time there. I love it. I love, 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 love Nova Scotia. Have you been uh, around since the pandemic? I haven't. No, I haven't been back up. We, in fact, just recently got permission to cross the border. So I'll jump right in. When did you first realize that you were gay? Oh, gosh, I don't have any recollections of prior to knowing I was gay. I just didn't know that that's what it was when I was that young. So uh, I thought that this giddiness around boys and the the nerves at the idea of being in a shower because we had group showers then god i miss those (laughs) was something everybody felt i thought oh i'm gonna grow up and get married and i'll have kids and all that with a woman but that all guys felt this too I just was waiting for it to make sense that it was that 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 was what was going to happen. So it it was a long time before I realized that, oh, fags and queers and oh, they mean me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's me. Uh, But, you know, I just I just went with it and figured it out like we all did, I guess. I couldn't tell you what age that was. Uh, To whom did you first come out? I don't know. Gosh, to ask a 60-year-old these questions. <laughs> That's so long ago. You know, I have no I have no idea to whom I first came out. So I was raped when I was eight. And there were two guys and a girl in that process dragged me into a um, shed. And uh, one guy and one girl held my arms down while the guy shoved chestnuts up my butt. 
And I remember leaving the shed, but I don't, every detail of what happened, leaving the shed, and then I don't remember a thing. I don't remember where I went, what I thought, what I, what I said. I remember it was scary-ish, like, is it going to, you know, tear something or hurt something or whatever else. And then at 10, I had a very, very, very different experience where I was molested, they would say, by an older guy, older by, by I mean, five or six years older than me, who took me into a uh, stall at a lifeguard's locker room. And he sat on the toilet and had me stand next to him. And he said, uh, he starts sucking my dick and he says, well, do you, it's a little salty. Do you want to, do you want to taste it? And I was like, no, what are you talking about? What are you doing? Uh, kind of like, what, what are you doing? Why is this taking so? Because he was doing something and it was taking a while. I'm like, what, what are you doing? And he's like, just wait. And uh, well, don't worry, just wait. And uh, oh my God, he went and I was like, wow, is that going to happen to me? <laughs> and I was so excited and it was very oddly positive. So it was kind of a con- counter to the rape. And sure, it wasn't supposed to have happened according to, but I was intrigued and enjoyed it and wondered when that was going to happen to me and stuff. And so I started uh, masturbating from, from then on, but I was 10. So nothing came out until I was 12. And I was just, I've always been fascinated with my body and feelings and very, very, very open. So I've dealt with it, I think. Did you have any sort of serious-ish relationships in your, during your adolescence? No. So I, so I had many encounters with neighbors, uh, you know, club that you had to take your pants off to go into and a Navy kid that moved into the neighborhood and we would jerk off with each other and, you know, all kinds of things that happened as I was growing up. But I dated-ish girls, not sex. Actually, but I took girls to movies. I went to the senior prom with, you know, that kind of thing. Who were your, did you have any early um, LGBT role models? No, I would say not even just no, none. Nothing about that was really public or available. Nothing. I don't recall any kind of sense of comfort or connection with, oh, (laughs) nothing that I'm aware of. What do you think of LGBT representation now? Well, I think it's fascinating now when I'm in an uh, I'm in a really odd position because I was on that show so broadly um, broadcast, and I've heard from I don't know I don't want to exaggerate I was going to say thousands but maybe hundreds but so many kids over these twenty years who've talked to me about having been what you're just asking, that that role model, that person who's just being themselves and doesn't care what people think and talking about what it means to be gay and, and things like that. So those kids tell me I'm a part of that representation. And I'm so proud of that. I'm so happy to be. It was certainly wasn't intentional. I was literally just being me because I thought that's what's right. And that's how it should be. And I'm so happy that that's helped some folks. So I, I, as far as representation, I think there are far, far more people for younger people coming out or learning who they are to relate to. I still don't think, well, I, I know that it's still not where it needs to be because the many who contact me need help and are faced with families who are disapproving and terrible, terrible stress that shouldn't even be part of their lives for such a silly thing. I know that representation is much more available. People have role models to to look up to, those kinds of things. But there's a long, long, long way to go, I think. 
You were raised on Rhode Island. How would you, you just described uh, one part of your childhood that obviously wasn't very pleasant. How was your childhood in general living in Rhode Island? Well, Rhode Island's a, a very puritanical, I would say, state. It's, uh, it's, it had been very staunchly Catholic, Protestant, religious, whatever, uh, in, in many different ways. I knew that I was atheistic very, very early. My brother was killed when I was 15. He was 13. Prior to that, I'd already thought the idea of a deity seems absolutely nuts. And I was trying to figure out why so many of people around me believed not just in some imaginary being, but in all these tenets that made no sense, that seemed made up and that were contrary to tenets in other made up fantasies. So so it really drove me nuts. And um, I just never, ever really subscribed. I, I read that you majored in marine biology and oceanography. What prompted your interest in in that field. Within Rhode Island, in the center of the state, is an island called Aquidneck Island, on which there are three towns, and I live on that island. So we were in Newport, Rhode Island. I was really young, and my mom and dad, I think, were walking on the sidewalk with me, and there was this enormous from my perspective at the time, white, big white boat uh, from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And so I asked about it and they explained it. And it fascinated me, the idea of ocean exploration and what lives in the ocean and the animals. And of course, I just started studying and looking and I've been more than obsessed ever since. I'm a PADI certified scuba instructor. I'm tattooed from head to toe in all kinds of marine life. Well, I have a big octopus. All <laughs> uh, It's really wild. But I've just always, always, always really connected somehow with sea life. And humpback whales from as young as I can remember have been my my thing. I've just I've just been fascinated by them. I think they're astoundingly beautiful. Yeah, I think it's deplorable how we interact with most species and them in particular. So I mean, whales in particular. So it's it's uh, it's just been a lifelong fascination. And when I started the study in Florida in marine biology and oceanography, my first majors, I realized that this was all, much of it was to me drudgery. And I thought, oh, I don't want to ruin my passion. <laughs> so I so I switched and uh, and stopped the academic pursuit and just let let it be my passion. I've, I've read that you have one sibling. Do you have any others? Oh, I'm the oldest of seven. And so were your parents together throughout your childhood? No, my parents divorced when I was 11. You joined the army and served for five years. What was that experience like? So that was um, an interesting experience like all of them. One of the things I've done all my life is when things aren't working or they just aren't fulfilling or I'm not really happy in, in what it is or I've learned all of what I think I need to learn at the time, it's time to move on. So I was in just out of high school. I'd gone to a year of college in Florida, marine biology, and it was time to shift because that was, I didn't want to ruin the passion, as I said. So I joined the army. I, I just came home. I was engaged to a woman and thought, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> Duh. And so I just up and went to basic training. I joined the army and flew to basic training in El Paso, Texas one day. And so it became a, an interesting learning experience. What is this world? What is the army? Uh, when I was in basic training, the commander thought, what are you doing? And why aren't you, uh, why don't you apply to the academy? You're bright, a bright guy and et cetera. So he actually began the process of applying to West Point, United States Military Academy, which is a pretty prestigious school. And then I was appointed by my my senator and boom uh, so i went to west point it, it, but at west point part way through 
in my fifth semester, you had to decide, are you going to stay through graduation and commit to five years? Or if you leave, then you don't owe any more. And I'd already been enlisted before that. So I thought, oh, this is an interesting time. There was no don't ask, don't tell. It was prior to that. Gay was a big no-no and you would be immediately expelled. So I thought, no, I, I, I'm not living in secret. I was engaged sexually with uh, cadets at West Point. So it wasn't anything I was going to pretend and continue with. Among your jobs uh, was working at New York City's Palladium. What did you do there? So the owners, uh, Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager, owned Studio 54. And then when they finished with that and had some tax issues, etc., they moved on and started the Palladium, which is a huge, successful club. And I was all kinds of things. I was a bouncer. I picked people at the front door. I was a VIP manager. I did all, all kinds of things uh, while I was there. It was a very, very, very interesting time in my life, being gay in Manhattan, New York City in the 80s. Whew. Friends of mine, I, I've never worked worked in bars or clubs or anything like that, but I all of them have at least one wild story. Do you have any? Oh, well, I have hundreds. I mean, I, I, it was Manhattan. So, and these people were connected with every celebrity you know of. So, I mean, Jane Fonda and Jack Nicholson. And I mean, just every person you could think of at the time was coming through the club and I was either hosting them or setting them up with, you know, their drinks in the Michael Todd room, which was you know, kind of a private place for them or doing something. I was the driver for Steve, Steve Rubell's and Ian Schrager's personal driver for a while at the time too. And so uh, Mick, I drove Mick Jagger and, and you know, all these people that they wanted me to, dr to drive. At some point, Halston and Calvin Klein and Steve Rubell, the owner, were out for a night and I was driving them and all three of them at some point for whatever reason, were gone. We're just passed out in the car. And so I literally had to let them into open, you know, Halston's house and, and kind of gently guide them all in and lay them, sit them down. It was, you know, that's just one. It was a, a crazy, crazy time. Obviously, Survivor was a big turning point in your life. I apologize in advance. I'm a bit of a Survivor novice. I don't know a whole lot, but I do know that the finale episode, yours received 51.7 million viewers ratings that are completely unheard of today. Did you anticipate at the time that the show was going to become what it's become? I did. Prior to even being selected, I knew that the concept was phenomenal. And I talked to the producers during the selection process before they picked me as a contestant about how powerful it was and how unique. And as somebody whose background is psychology and people fascinate me, etc., I knew that viewers would watch and be, I don't know, forced is the word, but compelled to be introspective. And we didn't have any of that or much of that on television. So people can't help themselves when watching Survivor to ask, oh God, would I do that? Why is she doing that? Oh, how dare he? You know, these questions that cause us to, to have angst or think about what our limits are. And, and that's fascinating. So I thought it would be quite powerful. And, you know, I could never have predicted how long or how profitable or any of that, but I knew it was good stuff. And I uh, was happy to participate. Do you still watch the show? I've never missed an episode. What do you think of the uh, twists, the new kind of all of the new additions and twists and turns that are a part of the show that weren't there before? Yeah, I think they're appalling and I think it's sad. So there's an explanation for it that's also sad. Jeff Probst is the host and he's a, a tremendously talented host. But he, many years ago, became the executive producer and everything has gone downhill since. His ego's in the way. He 
he's creating nonsense and integrating it into the show that's unrelated to what the show is, even though he's been there from the beginning and hosted all of them. He doesn't seem to understand why people connect to it, what they're looking for, what participants are really doing, and how to communicate that to, to America. He is ruining it by engaging in ways that are disconnected from what the show is about. Particularly recently, he's become the show, he's made the show and he himself are trying to pretend to be preachy and socially appropriate rather than letting the show be its own exposure of who we are, leading to wonderful discussion about what should change? He's ruining it. And and fans know it. They're talking about it. But he's just not listening. I think he's surrounded by people who tell him what he wants to hear, which is too common in Hollywood. And somehow I think he's missing out on uh, being challenged, as I might do to him, about so many of his choices. And, and, and your partner, if he's a fan of the show, is likely to note all of the things that I'm talking about as he's watching it, because they distract from what you want and what you love about the game. Well, he was hoping you were going to be on the uh, season, the, one of the most recent seasons where they brought people back. So, Yeah, winners at war. There's no reason I shouldn't have been. If you could go back to the year 2000, would you still take part on Survivor? Well, I would, because I don't think it makes sense to say I wouldn't. I would, I would have the information I had, and I would make those same choices. And I love the game. I feel incredibly proud of myself and how I played. And I would never take away what I've, the most valuable thing that's come from it to date, which is, you know, young gay guys just reaching out and being indescribably generous to me with how powerfully they tell me they're impacted. They just gush. And and I you know, it's tearful at times, just how rewarding it seems to have been to them to see me just be me. And so forget all that's happened. And boy, some really awful stuff has happened for me in my life as a result of being so public, but worth every second. You are a father. You adopted a son as a single parent. What has the experience of parenting been like for you? Oh, that's a broad, broad, broad question. So yeah, I did adopt a behaviorally disordered boy from state care, and that was challenging. We really went through some some rough patches. He he struggled, but he's, you know, graduated from college and gone on, and he's living in another state and doing well. But in addition to that, <laughs> which was challenging to have raised him, and that's kind of the parenting part maybe that you're talking about. But I've also, since the 23andMe and Ancestry.com have come to the scene, I've found, well, they, so far, nine of my biological kids have found me. So I have, yeah, six boys and three girls and relationships with all of them, some of whom now have children, two or three, uh, so I'm three or four grandchildren now. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's crazy and amazing and fulfilling. And, you know, wow, is all I can say. I mean, I can say a lot more, but it would take forever. <laughs> That's incredible. I had only I was going to ask I had seen in uh, a clip of you on an Oprah program with two of them. So you've met even more since since then. Oh, yeah, yeah. We all flew out to Chicago to uh, outside of Chicago in uh, Denver, actually not Chicago to outside of Denver and rented a house for a weekend or a week whatever long weekend and got to know got to meet one another and it's it's pretty pretty amazing how biology my genes ha, are expressing themselves in people 
I had never met until they were, you know, 20 something. So it's, it's great. I'm sure it's been individual for, for each one, but how is the, how has the process been getting to know them as um, adults and developing those relationships? Oh, phenomenal for all of them. I mean, it, it is different for each one, but I told each of them when I met them that when they first made contact that I'm available in whatever ways they want or don't want to whatever extent they want. It's not anything I'm, I'm not interested in interfering fearing in their lives in any other way than what they might enjoy. And so it's, it's been, it's, it's just been flat out wonderful. As somebody who was wrongfully convicted, what are your thoughts on the American prison system? <laughs> oh, watch my Twitter. <laughs> so it's abhorrent. It's broken. It's um, not just callous and counterproductive, but but really destructive. It's an awful, awful, awful inhumane system, and it's it, there's it shouldn't even be surprising that it is. We're idiots, America, for the way in which we've created or or are facilitating this system. Still, we have individuals and we give them power. We've known for centuries that power corrupts, and yet we stick people, individuals. Why do we have a judge making decisions instead of some sort of objective panel? Why do we have a politician in a particular role with all kinds of power? Why do we have a single person in charge of anything? It's just, you know, even, you know, we're facing now in America, the challenges of why it is that there are some policemen, not all policemen, but who are so racist that they kill. Think about all that's less than that. The prejudices and biases and the the awfulness that is human is exaggerated when you give somebody so much power. And it should be simple for us to see that and to create a different system, but we don't. So, you know, short answer in a in a venue like this on your podcast, you know, it's just a broken, awful system that has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with what's right or what's true. It's about politics. It's about an awful kind of win-at-all-costs approach that prosecutors take, despite that being specifically what they're not supposed to do. They all know they do it. It's, it's, it's terrible. Really, really terrible. I'm sure you you know this being a part-time resident of Canada that we have, not that it's a whole lot better than the United States, but we have some different political options. And I do sometimes wonder that if, if the two-party system in the U.S. is to blame for a lot of just the corruptness and, and whatnot that happens in the, the U.S. with regard to penal system and well, indeed it is. And and I guess underlying that is something you probably couldn't realize or don't know. Well, maybe you do. I, I don't know what other countries, uh, citizens, I don't know to what extent they can be aware of just what goes on here. But Americans are so filled with propaganda about America and how it's such a, you know, we're number one, we're great. I mean, all that idiocy that that idiot Trump espoused. I mean, it's just it's just marketing bullshit, but people buy it. And so we don't look to Canada. We don't look to Europe. We don't look to any other countries to see what's being done better, because how could they? America's the best. We're number one. We're, uh, it's asinine beyond description. It's everything you talk about when you teach people how to learn, not to do. They close off information. So we wouldn't even think about looking at your system to see how what specific pieces we might integrate to do better, because how could anybody do better than us? It's awful. Were you a supporter of Biden's? I was. I would have supported a kindergartner, literally. 
over Trump. I don't know that Biden, well, I, I actually don't believe Biden was the best of the Democratic candidates that were running by any stretch. But no question that it comes down to anyone and Trump and I supported them. You know, the system needs reform and the two-party system is really, really problematic. But anything to get rid of Trump. Trump was and is as dangerous and horrendous a human being as any who has come anywhere near the political power that he attained during that time in office. And we weren't equipped as a country with an uneducated citizenry to deal with him. It's, it's scary. And the world watched. Before I let you go, what are you up to and, and how do people find you? Oh, I'm easy to find. So on Twitter, I am most engaged, but I'm on Instagram and Facebook and whatever, all those other things. I don't spend a lot of time on them, but I am up to some fun things. There are a couple of shows in the works that I can't talk about, but I am producing a podcast and I've got two episodes in the can. We won't we won't launch it until I tape a few more, but it's about truth. It's about reality mattering. Reality matters. So not the show reality television, but reality itself, what's true, I say should matter. And that's what I'm talking about. And so it's pretty challenging. And I hope to inspire people to think and to question things a little more than we do, rather than just adopt so much of the misinformation that's spewed everywhere so easily. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's that's coming soon. But if either of these shows that's that are in the works actually pans out, that will be fun. And we may want to talk again, too, because because that, again, they're they're pretty big. They'll be broadcast worldwide. I just want to say uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. Much appreciated, Brody. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, be well. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.